We're going to go ahead and call it 5 o'clock and start. We're going to start right now because we can, and I want to introduce you right now to our first guest here on This Week in Moab. As you know, the Pack Creek Fire, uh, the update as of now, as of 7 a.m. Monday, June 21st, is that the Pack Creek Fire is now 58% contained. I just want to breathe that data in for a second. And although the fire activity is decreasing overall, uh, the northeast side of this uh, conflagration continues to be in uh, an active state in some pretty inaccessible areas. Now, instead of going into the details, what I'm going to do is turn to my left to a rugged and handsome face that belongs to himself, Jason Kirks, and also to the Bureau of Land Management. And you are a fire fuels uh, specialist, right, Jason? And thank you. Yeah, that's correct. And thank you for having me and the kind introduction. But yeah, <laughs> so I work here at the Moab Field Office for the BLM. We are part of the Canyon, Canyon Country Fire Zone. And the part of the wildfire division I'm in is called uh, Fuels Management, where we go in and we do prescribed fire and fuels reduction projects around communities and also any uh, threatened habitat. And we're also doing a lot of the work uh, to do tamarisk removal and uh, restoration along our riparian systems along the Colorado River and uh, any of the tributaries along with that. So you're prepared to talk a little bit about how uh, much of an interesting job it is to do interagency communication around a shared landscape, I'm sure. But I understand you were one of the first responders, and so I really need to have you, you know, debrief your experience a little bit about what that was like for you and, and also how long you'd been here, where you come from, and, and how it hit you. Okay. Well, uh, some of my background, I've been in wildfire for almost 25 years I worked on, you know, started from the ground level working on uh, hand crews and engines and hot shots and all the different, uh, had basically all the different experiences you can have in wildfire and training. Uh, one of the trainings, as we move along through our careers, we work on qualifications. And so one of the qualifications that I worked on years ago was to become a, a incident commander type three. So we have several levels of the incident command system. It starts out as a five, and then it's a, a five, a four, a three, a two, and a one. So the Pat Creek Fire, um, when I arrived, it was already growing. It was becoming complex. It was running as a type four incident command system. And then when I showed up, I relieved the type four IC and took over as a type three. And that just means it has higher complexity, we start organizing um, structure, we start calling in more resources, and we just do everything that we can do to provide for safety for our firefighters and also for the public, and then um, trying to get control over a very chaotic situation. Well, this was one with intense fire and heat, and it was, uh, you know, it's a trite phrase, but a tinderbox indeed. Uh, start me from when, when it first hit you, how big it was. You, you went up there, and then what? So I, was, I actually was watching it uh, when we first got the report from our dispatch center. I went outside of the office just, you know, not too far from here, and I could already see the smoke. Um, 
and usually we don't see smoke when the fire's first called in unless it starts moving pretty quick. So we're already seeing smoke just from our office here in, the, in Moab. Um, and then I arrived about uh, an hour later up to the incident. And when I showed up, the fire was still, uh, the predominant wind was moving to the north. So the fire was moving kind of behind the picnic area, the Pack Creek picnic area, and it was moving to the north up a slope. And when I took over command, the, the engines, the resources, the aircraft, everybody was still focused on that back end. So they were working it with helicopters, doing the bucket drops, and we had some uh, air drops, air tanker drops going in, putting the retardant, and we had all the engines back there. Well, all of a sudden, I think it was around, I'm, I might have my timeline a little bit mixed up, but it seems like it was sometime around uh, 7 or 7.30, the wind all of a sudden shifted dramatically down canyon. So the, the wind just shifted, um, so it's no longer blowing to the north, it's blowing right down canyon towards Pat Creek. And the fire wasn't burning on the slopes through the pinion and juniper, it was actually burning very actively with high intensity right through the riparian zone, through all the cottonwood trees right in Pat Creek. So uh, we all had to, all the firefighters at that point basically had to evacuate the picnic area and then get down to the community and that's when we realized that things were going to get really intense really fast and so we started calling for more resources. Uh, we had the Moab Valley Fire Department, they, they arrived with several engines and then we put in a call for later that evening when the fire was really moving through the riparian zone and then it was, uh, I mean, we we're talking about flame links that were coming out of that cottonwood, out of the cottonwood and riparian zone about 60 feet tall. It was... In all directions, up, uh, up. Predominantly down canyon, but then it was, it was flanking. We call that flanking fire. So the flanking fire was going up the side to the north, but luckily the Forest Service had done a fuels treatment years ago, and I, I actually took my phone out to record that to get some video footage so I could... Uh, watch that, but the fire, when it hit the pinion juniper area where the Forest Service fuels treatments were, the fire actually slowed down. And then at that point, we had a heavy tanker come in, uh, one of the jets, and a retardant drop was made, and they tied into that fuel break that the Forest Service had created, and that was one of the first drops that uh, went down into Pat Creek to start protecting the homes. And sadly, several were lost. Do uh, what is the protocol about about saying who we should think of uh, with with kindness in our hearts for their losses? I is it mm -hmm. is it typical to say just homes were lost, but not whose? Everybody cares. Oh right, yeah. So you know, it, I really think about that when I when I um, am working around homes on wildfires. I think about I think about my own home and how much work I put into it. Yeah. And the homes are full of aspirations and dreams and sometimes even a lifetime of work. So um, when we protect homes, we really take that into consideration how much work people put into those. But always the number one priority for us is, is life, is human life our, for our firefighters and also for the public. So mm -hmm. um, again, taking that into number one consideration and then uh, we also want to always protect structures and property and infrastructure when we when we do these fire uh, when we do fire operations firefighting and and so some of it did come into the homes in Pat Creek and mm -hmm. there was a ferocious uh, effort 
to prevent any further damage. Where were you when that was happening down in the home? So when the fire entered, it, the fire passed the Forest Service boundary and it entered into the into the subdivision. Mm. So it's moving through this uh, through the riparian zone, and then again the flanking fire is trying to move outward into the community. Um. So we got the engines, all the engines that we had. Basically, everybody from this part of Utah showed up. Uh, all the resources that we could muster up showed up into Pat Creek to come help out. So it was a really amazing interagency effort with all our volunteer fire departments, the state of Utah, Forest Service, everybody. Uh, all the airplanes that, that came and helped us out. So what we did is we uh, tried to get ahead of the fire as much as we could, and we pre-treat the homes with water and the property. So the engines were spraying things down. Um, some places, the homeowners had done considerable work, so there was defensible space, and the firefighters could actually uh, sit there and and wait the fire out and let it pass by to make sure that spot fires didn't come through. Um, because many times, most of the time actually, when you're in an urban interface fire situation like that, there's thousands and thousands of embers raining down, and those embers are starting little spot fires all over, which end up becoming part of the overall main fire. They all grow together. So the firefighters were all waiting, putting out the spot fires. If the fire got too intense for some of the properties, they had to evacuate that specific property, but then immediately would come back after the fire passed through um, to put out any structure fires that were involved. And so many were saved by this? That more were saved, uh, especially the first two days, than, um, than, you know, were consumed. How did it feel to have several hundred people show up to help? Uh, to tell you the truth, it's, it's really stressful. <laughs> it's, it's a stressful job, and, but all the training that we go through and just dealing with this for 25 years we're able to handle the stress and then get into a mindset that you know we can we can uh, have a high reliable organization high reliable high reliability organization we trust our forces we have really good training uh, everybody comes in and so all through the night uh, as we're trying to maintain organization and safety and everything that goes into this the Firefighters were doing a really good job at uh, finding any holes or what needed or other things that needed to be accomplished, and they would immediately give me a call and say, "Hey, what about this? Or we need to do this," and and then I would come up, we'd come up with a plan on how to do it, or I'd call for more resources from the dispatch center that so we could uh, take care of those things that all the things that needed to be taken care of that night. Well, I think at this moment it's important to say thank you for all of the people that are part of that resource to help the resource area known as the LaSalle Mountains and uh, by extension all of the places that are at risk of fire damage this year in particular if you've just tuned in you're listening to This Week in Moab and I'm Christy your host it's 10 minutes into the hour of five o'clock I'm talking with Jason Kirks who works for the Bureau of Land Management as a fire fuels uh, specialist, mm -hmm. yes, and has this incredible experience about working with uh, several hundred people across, uh, I don't know how many agencies or, uh, as you say, it was the rest of the state of Utah just came to get with it. Uh, it was a remarkable organizational effort 
the community itself was trying to uh, give donuts, uh, help, <laughs> all of this. And then there was a moment when it was like, uh, no, no, no thanks. No, really, really thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, because of what you're mentioning. It was a little chaotic. Uh, there are a lot of things people take for granted. Sure, they'd like some drinks. Let me just give them. Or, hey, that dumpster. I think that's where I'll put those coals. Uh -huh. Can we go back to that and to the beginning of it and, and to a little bit of what some people would call common sense um, and how much of that perhaps wasn't applied when the fire got started? Or Tell us what you know about the forensics. Oh, about the, like, the, so the fire investigation yeah. itself. So anytime we have a human-caused fire or suspect that it's human-caused, we do fire investigations, and uh, especially on the BLM, we try and investigate at least, we, we try and get to 100% if we can of doing fire investigations. So anyways, on this one, the, the fire investigation was conducted, and it was uh, immediately determined that it was from an abandoned campfire, and... With that being said, we were all quite disappointed that we still keep going down the same road over and over again. How many times do people have to learn this lesson to put your campfires out? It seems so easy. I mean, how many times does the public in the Western United States have to realize that you're going to start fires if you don't put your fire out? And then this one was concerning because it's in a, a, a campground or a picnic area right above a community. So with that part, yeah, uh, getting into the emotional side of it, I think all of us here, all, all the firefighters were not only um, were we mad that this was an unattended campfire, but this is now in our community. So we were even more mad. So I go all around the United States, uh, especially the Western United States working on fire. And I've come across many, many fires from unattended campfires or campfires that have got out of control but this one it just it hit me really hard and it hit the rest of us in this the firefighters in this community really hard that somebody would be that um, irresponsible and leave a fire when it's hot windy and extreme drought it again it seems like a very common sense thing to maybe just not even do a fire but uh you know it's easy to see how in these conditions it could get started really easily and even somebody that thought it might be out and went away, uh, you know, so I remember hearing just, oh gosh, it's only last week now, mm -hmm. uh, people saying, well, maybe this and maybe that, trying to give whoever it was, you know, some benefit of the doubt. But then uh, I guess it was a rumor that it was actually really rather more, um, I don't want to say intentional, but there was a rumor that it was actual flammable already f fired material that was going into a dumpster oh no I deny that for me yeah I, w that's that must be a rumor I saw a lot of rumors going around but yes it was, it was it, it's an open and continuing investigation right now so I can't talk to too many specifics but I can confirm that it was that that it was, was not okay. yeah it was a campfire great because I I don't like to uh, either carry or transmit misinformation ever so I rely on people like Jason Kirks to help us here at KZMU and me personally, uh, you know, keep it straight. Mm -hmm. So unattended, <clears throat> pardon, campfire it is. Yeah. I understand there were, however, open flames. It wasn't just a smoking thing. It was a, go a going campfire, fully 
un- unattended? I'm not sure if it was that, you know, to that detail or not. Like I said, I haven't seen the, the full, I wasn't the, the fire investigator. I'm also a fire investigator as well, but I wasn't the one who investigated this I see, one, I see. So, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping me with those details. They're the little ones that kind of bug people. They were like, no, oh, yeah. what was it that made that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so everybody mad. Everybody mad. Yep. And it'll be a long time before that, um, before that view shed recovers. Talk to us a minute about what that really means. So you have different ecological zones within the fire area. So low, lower down, of course, well, you, you had the riparian zone with all the cottonwood trees right along the creek. And then above that, you have the pinyon juniper ecozone, uh, which is, uh, of course, a lot drier. Uh, that's going to take a while to recover that section. And then above that, you have the brush layer, so all the oak brush. That'll recover fairly quickly. That'll probably start to green up you know, next year. Um, and then where the uh, conifer was, you know, up in the Geyser Pass area, that, that was, uh, we have what we call fire regimes. And different ecosystems are actually fire adapted or need, need fire. And one of those is aspen. So anytime there's always this struggle between conifer and aspen, especially on the LaSalle's. And so when the conifer gets out of balance, it starts to kick the aspen out and the aspen can actually start to die off. And that, that fire regime for the conifer is every between two and 400 years. It actually does this. It burns completely. And the ground is now barren and the sunlight hits the dark soil and it sends a signal to the root system of the aspen and brand new aspen shoots will start to come up. So it, it's pretty awesome that that will recover. We're going to get uh, aspen probably in a lot of those places uh, where, the, where the fire was, especially in that higher elevation zone. So it's, it's going to take several years. But usually aspen comes in by the thousands, thousands of shoots per acre, so or sometimes tens of tens of thousands of shoots per acre. So it'll it'll restore. It'll look good. We'll have our mountain back again. But it's we're gonna have to look at some black for you know maybe a, a few years. Well, it won't be forgotten even as uh, decades go by about how quickly, in a matter of hours, we watched um, you know the remains of history sort of be sent aloft into the air. Um, Our deepest condolences to people who did lose their homes and their belongings, and uh, we're just so grateful. What do we want to say about what you wish you could say, not necessarily to the person we will have to now call the uh, perpetrator, Mm -hmm. but um, I guess the world at large, the listenership at large about how to think about not just fire, but the places that we share. You know, it's something we're facing in Moab where, you know, I don't, we don't know if it was a, a, a resident or a, someone visiting or not, but we just wish people would take more care to just do a little bit more effort. Really, it w- would it have been that hard to put some water on a campfire? I don't think so. That's a pretty simple task. So that's the thing about it, and that's why it's frustrating because it's such a simple task just put your fire out it's so easy so hopefully 
We got the word out. So that, that was one thing we recommended. So as I talked about the fire investigations, a lot of times we don't mention, uh, while it's an active investigation, we don't mention what maybe what started the fire until it's closed or until we have a suspect. Sure. But in this case, we felt uh, in the uh, everybody basically involved with this fire felt that it was very important to get the word out that this was an unintended campfire because we want to get this message out. We don't want this to happen again to any of our other communities in this area, and we are in an extreme drought right now. The vegetation is so dry. We've had so much wind. We've had very little rain. So the fire danger right now is just extreme. In fact, I was just thinking about uh, every time I walk outside right now, it literally feels like fire season, and mm -hmm. it's really early in June. This Right now, the weather, the way the weather feels, it feels like August. It's really dry, so people need to take extra precautions, every possible way to try and prevent human-caused fires. We don't really even need to make a list, do we? Just if there is any fire that is required for your activity, reconsider it. Mm -hmm. and there's, but there's also so many other ways we have... Uh, fires caused by shooting. We have fires caused by vehicles. We have, you know, basically anything that can generate a small Heat. spark can start a fire with the with how tender dry we are right now. Well, you do see signs all across the West right now saying don't park over dry brush. And that means like even the cheatgrass or anything mm -hmm. just right off the gravel, because even an idling vehicle is enough, isn't it? The uh, the exhaust manifold yes could definitely start. We've we've had fires start that way, um, you know, around here. So exhaust manifolds, even dragging chains. Oh yeah, trailer so, chains. Uh huh. Trailer chains and uh, flat tires. Flat tires. If you're dragging the rim, that could spark a fire. There's so many way different ways, but just doing maintenance on your equipment and then just being mindful and aware and, and careful. Oh, there you go. Mindful, aware, and careful. Mm -hmm. Uh, not a common commodity. <laughs> let us, let us, uh, you know, if we're going to mine for something, more of that in us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Jason, so much. What do we want to tell people about? What to expect then about the Dark Canyon area? Any of the places there are people that might be seeing, oh gosh, it looks like this road is open. Um, tell us some particulars about what's happening up there right now. So Can you? I, you know, I was basically, um, I ordered a type two team after I, so I transitioned the fire from the type three to a type two team and the type two team came in. I ran it for the three days. And so right now they are in, uh, th they're managing the fire. So, uh, it's the team four, Great Basin team four is managing the fire and they have all the information. Uh, they have a public affairs specialist, a whole team of public affairs at the arena, and you can go to utahfireinfo.gov for all the information. You can uh, find the specifics on the Pat Creek Fire. Everybody was looking furiously for the best interactive map for a minute there, mm. and uh, I think that's one of them that showed up with the, you know, last word. Um, you know, four new fires ignited from lightning near the Moab Valley in this past little bit. Pat Creek Fire Ground and Aviation responded. Uh, they will continue to assist these new fires in a, another, uh, you know, in an attempt to prevent a large incident. There was one in the southern end of the Book Cliffs. There was a little one in Castle Valley. There was one near Thompson Springs. 
uh, the largest being the Sago Fire. Um, so, the LaSalle Loop Road is now open, is what I'm reading, and the forest closure remains in place. The area remains closed for any type of recreation. Crews say to avoid driving on the LaSalle Loop Road unless it's necessary to access private property, for instance. The roads to Uwa Lake, thank you for saving Uwa Lake, <laughs> and Geyser Pass, but they're still closed. The road closures for LaSalle Pass Road and Dark Canyon Lake Road are also ongoing due to the fire activities still happening there on the northeast side of the fire. Evacuations remain in place in and around the area east of Geyser Pass from Blue Lake to the Dark Canyon area. Uh, for all those who are heat sensitive anymore and think of the mountain as their last resort mm-hmm. again, we grieve with you and ask you to just hold tight. Um, yeah, wet a sheet, put that over your head, <laughs> stand near a door, <laughs> and, um, and thank firefighters everywhere. Is there anything else that we want to say? Any words of, well, mindfulness, <laughs> awareness, anything you want to say? Messages of love and hope to the Moab people. No, we just, uh, I would like to say the community outreach and compassion and the donations and the response from our first responders, you know, outside of the BLM, outside of the Forest Service, our, our sheriffs and our volunteers, everybody did such an awesome job. I was so proud of, of the community, how everybody came together and focused on Pack Creek and took it to heart and did the best job that they could possibly do with the situation that we were faced with. It, it really is amazing that it could have been worse with all of that you know, fear and all of the loss that did happen could have been worse. Thank you very much for also mentioning how life grows back. And we, it won't maybe be the same, but it receives cues. It's awake under there. It'll come back. Yeah, vegetation, it's, it's always changing. It's always adapting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for the positive word on that. It's 525, and I, I think we're good. Do you have a contact a uh, piece of contact you'd like to um, send out if people would like to contact you about uh, interagency questions? Oh, yeah. So if anybody does, so we're always looking for places where we can do uh, our vegetation removal projects. So if anybody has ideas, I'm always open to re- receiving ideas or, or working around communities where people would like work done. And we have lots of different ways. If we're not the right agency to do it, we can reach out to uh, Forestry and Fire State Lands or the Forest Service or maybe even some of the uh, private groups that help us with restoration around here as well. Awesome. I guess I do have one last thing. I always do this. Thanks a lot. And then I think of one more Mm -hmm. thing, which is, what do you want to tell people about fire suppression? Um, There were some scary moments with people out there even just sawing and cutting. Uh, We were talking about don't do this to start a fire, and people can actually accidentally do it while they're trying to reduce the... Yes, <laughs> and we, we've seen that in Utah, so that, that is a good point. So when homeowners are doing their own removal, make sure if it's if you're doing it, I would recommend you do it in not the heat of the day and in, you know right in the middle of fire season because it is dangerous. You could start a spark and then end up... You're trying to do something proactive, but then something you know a a wildfire starts and so 
it's good if you always have beef, just be fire aware, have water ready with you, a hose, a, a bucket of water, anything that could immediately douse a, a spark while it's still really small before it gets established. And don't do it if it's windy. Don't do, just don't do anything if it's really windy out. That's the worst you could. So wind, flashy fuels, really bad combination. Hot tip. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, thanks for having Jason me. Jason Kirks, yeah. Thanks a lot for coming up, and let's hope we don't have to uh, do it this way about this topic again. Too very soon. Sounds good. Okay, good. <laughs> See you around. All right. Okay. Thanks. Uh, just about 5.30, you're listening to This Week in Moab on uh, what we'll call True Summer Now, isn't it? Solstice has come. We're into the long days. And, in fact, uh, fuels, fire fuels specialist Jason Kirks tells me that um, it feels kind of like August already in terms of the habitat for the fire so we're not going to call it dog days of summer just yet but we're going to pretend like it is when we're out there in the brush not doing anything with fire we're going to turn now uh, speaking of the resource area and the public lands I think it's super, super interesting that here in Grand County, you know, where there's 87% of the land is publicly held. In this, I think the Moab community has always been uh, more, well, put in the position of thinking about public lands more than other places. Who shares it, how they access it, what they do with it. Uh, so our next guest is here to tell us about just such a development. Now, Grant County and many other places in Utah have had their uh, various, I won't say always a controversy, but mm, sometimes not always a happy medium between the uh, state trust lands and their charter to develop them in order to make the most money possible for the education fund, ostensibly for the school children. And what we have here is a development on Sitla land uh, that has an awful lot of people deeply, deeply concerned about that, you know, what that means for the public, uh, the public land. And so I want you to hang tight here as a truly fine individual named Daly Heron says hi about what's happening at Looking Glass rock hi daily thank you for coming hello christy thank you so much for having me you bet it's so good to see you wearing a white linen dress the perfect thing for summer <laughs> it's about all we can wear right now in this heat in uh, the middle of june isn't it, it crazy it's, it's true uh, just for people visiting from elsewhere that are used to being fully clothed all the time <laughs> you will know it's a local when you're like wow that's a bikini and shorts so did you forget no you just get to it's a adaptation isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. yeah we have many years of practice at this point yes we do and part of it's from um being in a relationship with the place it tells us what's what's good and not so good mm -hmm. what's the most it can take and what's not i read an article that said uh oh i guess it was in the times independent is moab utah the unhappiest mm -hmm. city now because of well-being markers and this kind of thing uh, so we've noticed a big, fast change. And in this uh, study that was done on well-being from the Utah State University uh, team, looking at these markers across the state of Utah, the speed of change mm -hmm. is one of the things that 
uh, indicated a decline in happiness. Mm. And Moab rated real strong in those numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of change real fast. A lot of fronts at the same time Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. being challenged. Uh, And so I guess we'll start there as the entry point for a development that's occurring. Tell us about what's going on. Oh, lovely. Well, um, to, to begin, I'll just say I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on what is happening. You're I, a, yeah, d- I'm a <laughs> what your home girl, hometown. So, right? so yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hometown girl. Uh, I, I currently live and work in Moab. Um, this is this is my cherished home and community that I invest my, my time and my life in. Yeah, and, and, that, and from which I came from. <laughs> so. and, and you don't consider yourself uh, an activist, right? Not no, I mean, I, I, I think my views are oftentimes in line with activist views, but uh, this is not a new, uh, this is a new territory for me. Um, I happened upon this information through curiosity and a rumor, and then, and then I, I chose, because of my connection to this parcel of land, I chose to um, take a job under Canvas to just do my own investigation because I couldn't find any information out there. Um, th- it just, there wasn't any. <laughs> well, let's, so. let's go back and say uh, you found out about a proposal for under Canvas, which is basically redefining glamping, mm-hmm. and not just in Moab, Utah, but in mm-hmm. many places mm-hmm. where people are able to have a camping experience without sacrificing any luxury, mm-hmm. and there's a great deal of space mm-hmm. that also has become quite the, um, you know, item, both pre-COVID and especially, especially post-COVID. post-COVID. So it's a Talk about what the proposal is. Yeah, so th- this is a th- there's a lot of uh, topics to flesh out. So the proposal that I have come to understand um, that was proposed by Under Canvas um, to lease this parcel of land. It's a 640-acre parcel of Sitla land um, that is um, immediately adjacent to Looking Glass Rock. And the actual Sitla parcel itself includes the access route, the little sliver that the climbers and recreationists use to access the rock itself. And so that parcel is on, or that section of the rock is on the Sitla parcel. Um, Under Canvas approached Sitla to lease or to sell. I think there was a uh, discussion about selling it. They decided on a 30-year lease, um, which I would like to make another side note that I have not found the finalized lease, and I can't get anyone at Sitla to show me where that is or allow me to find it. So it's possible that this lease is still being finalized, which is great news if we'd like, as a community, to push under canvas from leaving the lease. I mean, it might be a done deal, and it might be signed, but it also might not, and I don't know. I, you know, I, I need help finding this information. But anyways, the lease is being worked out. From what I understand, it's 160 to 221 acres. I've heard lots of numbers on lots of different areas of platforms and people communicating that will be in the actual lease agreement. Um, that will include uh, the basically the entire little valley that is immediately adjacent and east to Looking Glass Rock. So when you're on Looking Glass Rock or in the alcove, and you look out at that incredible view shed, that incredible vista, that incredible open space that we all know for those who visit, 
that will be a glamping resort village. So uh, it's really important to understand this is not a modest campground, as Sitla, you know, had, had told a concerned citizen when they inquired about the lease being up for up, up for open bidding. Um, this is a 75-unit proposed tent, um, individual tent structures. These tent structures will be uplifted on platforms, but the platforms will be secured into the ground. Each of these tents, 75 of them, will have individual swamp coolers and wood fire stoves for heating and cooling. So you are heating and cooling a tent structure, very inefficient in my opinion. <laughs> um, these will not be EPA approved stoves. Uh, if you listen to the Planning and Zoning um, Commission meeting where um, that happened on June 10th, um, Dave McBrady, the Chief Development Officer, um, let us know that because of the supply chain um, breakdown there, these will not be EPA compliant stoves. So this will be regular wood fire burning stoves, swamp cooler heated, uh, uh, swamp cooler cooled, excuse me, tents. Um, they, each tent has running water, has a shower, a sink, and a flushable toilet. So even though it's a non-permanent structure, there will be permanent plumbing to each one of these 75 units. And there will also be a permanent 4,000 square foot air-conditioned lobby with uh, the option of a restaurant or a catered restaurant, I'm not sure. Um, there will be a parking lot big enough for 75 vehicles and a leach field. The water is proposed to be acquired through a well. I didn't um, realize there was water under there. Well, I guess if you dig deep enough, you know. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So, so, so this is what I've come to understand oh, of what this dipping, development is. Oh, right. Hole. So in a big moment of contention, and this is something I would love to take a, a moment to talk about. There's been a lot of discussion about, you know, the outraged citizens spreading misinformation. So I, I would just like to take a moment to kind of address that for a second. Um, when I found out about this acquisition or this proposal, proposal yeah. um, I reached out to Under Canvas immediately. I called, I called, I called. I asked to be returned with, with, a, with an email, with some sort of information. I heard from the employees that I had talked to that they're one of their regional development um, officers was visiting the Moab site. And so I went to the site and I waited for him. <laughs> to, to talk to him, to ask him, and I never found him. He showed up late. I'm not sure. I called. I asked for his cell phone number. So I gathered what little information I could, and I put it on my very small social social media platform. Your personal, my Facebook very page. personal, and I'm not a social media person. If anyone knows me, I'm not. But I luckily had a couple followers <laughs> that were able to spread the word that this is happening. And and in my social media post, I of course I'm emotional. It's my emotional opinions that I'm expressing um, as a concerned citizen. And I'm also asking everybody to gather their own investigation, their own information, mm -hmm. and to share it, to bring this information to light. So there was a lot of um, pushback from Under Canvas and Sitla about how we were spreading misinformation. I did have the day my op-eds were due. I had a five-hour meeting with a PR person from Under Canvas who was on the ground. And the two points that I was 
um, reprimanded for were that I called it a pool. It's not a pool, it's a dipping pond. So everyone be clear, it's a dipping pond that they're proposing. The other was that um, they would be, quote, developing looking glass rock and in some way then actually developing the actual rock and in that discussion actually limiting access to said rock. And so now there this is a, a problem. This is a rat's nest of mm. he says he said we promise here's the line, there's the line, where's the line? Who knows where the line is? The line is actually currently being negotiated as as far as I know today. Um, I don't think it's in Sitla or under Canvas's best interest to include the rock in their lease agreement because then you know there would be some major contention. Um, the point for us was when we say they're developing looking glass rock, that the experience of looking glass rock is not touching the actual rock. It is the experience of the space. So when we say you're developing looking glass rock, that means the area. So if we can, you know, loosen up and we're not fighting about <laughs> which, <laughs> where, is which. which is which, where, mm. where the line is, uh, there is a massive resort. It's, it's really akin to a hotel. We should not call it camping. It is a hotel development that sprawls over, and I brought a map too. You know, just so you can and take so, because it's radio, dear listeners, if you've just tuned in, I'm I'm talking to Daly Heron, who didn't, you know, consider herself the kind of person that would maybe be the activist that out there, you know, doing that brave, rad stuff. Even though you feel this way, to be moved to go out there and wait for the guy, it's a different order. You really, really care, and it's not just because you climb. Or, yeah, because I think that the one of the uh, takeaways that somebody could mistake is that it's just a small user group that mm-hmm. are just not wanting to share. Mm-hmm. And a very specific user group, and that's not true. Yeah, let's, uh, while I'm trying to tell a story about this map I'm looking at, <laughs> uh, talk about why that's not true and that's not quite fair either. Well, originally this land... Um, this p- a particular parcel that was um, now in the lease agreement was under canvas. It was originally leased by the Red family of La- um, LaSalle Livestock Company. And they, when I talked to Lowry, he's the only person who would return my phone calls <laughs> when I was trying to find out information. Um, and and he, was, he was pretty sad on the phone. We had a very, very um, heartfelt conversation about this land. His family had been using the outpost there with the corrals, the cowboy cave, um, since 1914, is, 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 you know, for, for, the, for their, their livelihood and their culture um, and their way of life. And he was, what I understood, in a 15-year leasing agreement for grazing. Um, He's had the leasing agreement on the particular parcel of land since whatever the act is called, the Taylors. The Grazing Act. Yeah, that one, the Grazing Act. Was it 30s or 40s? Mm, Somewhere in there. uh, Uncle Google knows if someone can look real quick. (laughs) Somebody will school me about this later if you know the answer. It's now a trivia contest. Uh, Yeah. So, so, but, you know... um, that was a very special piece of land yeah. used by a ranching family that has been here for generations. 
Um, there are lots of locals who have reached out to me. We, we put together very quickly a petition. You know, I woke up in the morning wondering, maybe I'm the only person that really cares that this is happening. You know, it, it could be that I'm the only one that's upset. And so when I initially put the petition out there, it was kind of to see, am I the only one who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and it has been amazing, the response um, from the community. I mean, it really brings tears to my eyes. There's over 2,000 signatures. You know, every day it's growing. The comments, if you read, it's a public you know, access. All the comments are public. There's 600 comments um, that are amazing to read through. Um, this reaches all different sorts of people, community members, we, the people who recreate out there, people who enjoy open spaces, older generations in Moab, people who are tourists who have traveled through and experienced the Vista, people who've gotten married there. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it spreads, and it is an incredibly unique geological landform. It, I, honestly, anywhere else in the world... I mean, everywhere would be around this area would be in a national park. But this particular landmark is so unique and so special and so moving. And part of what is moving about it is the space around it. And looking at this little map coming off of Looking, uh, looking Glass Road, there's Bureau of Land Management on one side land and state trust lands on the other, and a pretty large chunk that includes the under canvas uh, proposal. I think, dear listener, you're going to want to check it out if uh, if you care to. It does look significant. Uh, and so there is the access and the use and the history. I can't help but wonder um, what the water situation that mm -hmm. allows, I mean, to allow that kind mm -hmm. of... Um, use, I'm just curious about state trust lands now altogether and what mm -hmm. monitors things like um, where that water is coming from and who's supplying it and uh, all, all of that. I don't know any of that. If you do, once again, trivia, <laughs> Moab, 2595968, add to the conversation if you like. We have, you know, 15 minutes or so. Um, you might be able to say what you feel about mm -hmm. how we share and what that does to our space and um yeah yeah there's a lot to unpack there the water is a huge issue um another issue that was brought up uh is fire you know right when <laughs> we, we just had a wonderful 30-minute conversation about what we just experienced as a community with the Pat Creek Fire. Mm -hmm. And as I was understanding what was happening with this development, I was watching the fires burn simultaneously. Um, this development is very far from help. It is 29 miles from Moab, 31, 33, whatever miles from Monticello. 75 units with wood fire stoves supplied with wood for the guests to light themselves. There's a question there. Uh, uh, during the, the public, I'm sorry, the Planning and Zoning Commission um, meeting, one of the representatives uh, on the commission made the statement basically that he has land like this land and it just doesn't burn. <laughs> which um, if you go out there, there's a lot of trees out there and a lot of deadfall. Um, the, the, and 75 structures and a permanent structure and 75 wood fi 
burning stoves and fire pits and people partying. I mean, this is a, this is a serious undertaking to consider. The fire danger is big. Where is this water coming from and how is it being used efficiently to swamp cool tents in the middle of a raging summer, a dipping pond, a leach field, flushable toilets, pull chain, running water for each tent. This is a huge development. And Sitla, uh, when you speak to them, have you had the kind of response that allows for, well, say, here's where you go for public comment, or has it truly been as, uh, you know, nobody's getting back to you? Or how? how um, I've that? had a really nice conversation with Brian. Um, Great. He, he, yep. And that's about as far as I've gotten. Um, I've sent some emails. I've reached out to Salt Lake headquarters. And it's, you know, that's about okay. as far as I've gotten. Well, we do know that its charter sort of says, look, this is, this is what we do. Yeah. Um, In the name of the children. Yeah. And, and uh, a laudable, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a wonderful um, thing what it's supposed to go to. But, um, you know, it's also got a history of uh, really pushing this regardless mm -hmm. of what's happening mm -hmm. to the, you know, particular people right close to it. Mm -hmm. I, I hate to say that publicly, but that's the reputation. I didn't make it up. So um, I, I don't know where to go with this, al mm -hmm. although I think what this calls for is a little bit more research, maybe on just my part, to find out what are the, uh, say, limits or protocols or guiding principles around something like 75 individual units that looks like permanent permanent water there. So um, thank you for bringing it to everyone's attention. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I guess I want to say, if you want to find out more about under canvas, I, you know, as we are speaking about them, I want to be real clear. I don't have a particular position against or for that business. Uh, Glad to see people be able to thrive in an area, yeah, you know. Absolutely. But um, you can look at Forbes.com for an interesting information, piece of information uh, about the company and the shifts that are informing their giving of more space because it's come down to that for them mm -hmm. is being able to offer, you know, luxury and space and kind of views like that all to themselves. Mm -hmm. So this is a problem for something that has come to be felt as public land. Yeah. Um, and where do we go for further information? You've got, have you got a, a couple of... Uh, so, I mean, of course, we you can communicate um, with Sidla and Under Canvas directly. They, they, I have some lists of, of points that they like to make. Um, we are developing a website that is live now though we're still working on it savelookingglass.com and this is just a loose affiliate of friends this is not this just is actually just to myself and somebody i met on social media who cared a lot oh yeah fantastic <laughs> and, and uh and, and a couple you know and everyone pitching in hey how can i help what do you need what's going on can we donate you know can I pick up slack somewhere? So it's a very loose effort of just concerned citizens who all don't do this for a living. Not a user group. Not a user group. <laughs> so, so we have a website. We're trying to get um, up and running. Um, 
Tom Till has very generously lent us some of his amazing fine art photography Aww. that you can find on this website. Thanks, just to, Tom. Wow, it is absolutely breathtaking, moving his photos. Thanks they really to speak to that. Generous, generous photographers. Love them. Um, we'll have a we'll have a drone video of the entire landscape that a, a citizen local a local person filmed for us, just to kind of show everybody maybe who hasn't had the chance to experience it what the vista really feels like and looks mm-hmm. like the space, what it looks like at sunrise. Um, we, there are um, groups on Facebook that are fighting under canvas. We're not the only ones upset about the proposed development. There's a really big fight going on right now in the Columbia River Gorge in Washington, uh, the White Salmon River. Very interesting. Definitely look into that. Um, there's articles everywhere. You know, if you start scouring the internet, you can start to, to, to find information just like I did. And we're trying to compile everything we know on our website so it's more easily accessible. Well, let's cover some of the points. You took some time to compile them. Mm -hmm. Pick which ones you think we really need to add to make this a good offering. People have a full round understanding. Um, I think a good place to maybe start is Wasitla. I think this is the bigger conversation. How are state lands held in trust independently invested by... beneficiaries, um, uh, excuse me, but h- how SITLA operates to, to gather their fund. The, mm-hmm. and, and, and they, you know, the statement I have received is that they donated $93 million to Utah Public Schools last year, you know, and that's, that is wonderful. Um, if you put that number in comparison, um, that is one between one to two percent of the school budget for our public school system, um, and it does not actually fund the actual school programming. It offers grants and offers, you know, kind of like the sprinkles on top that are necessary that we need, but it it's not the girth of our educational system. And so I think it's important to put those numbers relative to each other. Ninety-three million dollars is a lot of money. The actual budget for running the entire um, public school system is much higher. is much 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 bigger, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so how this um, how this farming of our state held trust land how this happens I think we really need to start having big discussions because we have a finite amount of land, um, and children in our educational system are in it for the long haul. So how we invest on this land to gather a monetary you know, resource from it, um, I think is, is, is what needs to be the takeaway from this whole thing. Because it, it's, there's a lot of Sitla land out there, and there's a lot of commercial interest in our area, especially the southeast corner of our wonderful state. Um, and I personally, the, there's same, you know, I have my opinion of how I think Sitla could be reformed. And, and really quickly, I think one of them is, to include and to include the opinions of the school kids, the educators, the educational system itself. How would they like the money that's being awarded to them? How would they like to see their lands used to develop that monetary gain? At least take you know use their let their voices be heard. What they'd like to see happen since it's being invested in and created name. in their name. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think in the long run, not piercing the bubble of a developed area and introducing s- commercial sprawl 
at sprawl in open spaces is a more coherent long-term strategy for investment plan. I think it's a short-term investment plan when you start letting commercial interests willy-nilly sprawl all over the place. We have a very delicate, finite landscape. And introducing this type of development is a bad end game in the long haul, in my opinion. Now, <laughs> can we go back to the beginning and thank you, Daly Heron, so much for being uh, moved to act upon that which you care for. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, you told me, did I, did I understand you correctly that you actually were working for them to do your own research or? Um, no, thank goodness. I wasn't. I have, no, I've heard only horrible things about working for oh. under canvas, but <laughs> um, I took a job working for a wonderful local resident, um, helping waitress at a catered event at a buyout wedding that happened at our other Moab cam under canvas location. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it was a one-time gig, thank God. Okay. All right. So I just wanted, again, not, not spread misinformation <laughs> and, and be as uh, just open and clear as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So be their understanding might bloom. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, if you have any further information about this, there are a number of places where you can go. As Daly suggested, you can go to the CITLA, uh, the CITLA site itself. And um, maybe if you're moved in this other direction to, uh, you know, act on behalf of influencing their uh, looking glass project, then you might want to get a hold of Daily or look online at the Save Looking Glass. Oh, Save Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we really would, you know, we need we need help if anyone's out there on the airwaves. Um, we, we're a skeleton crew, really tired at this point, trying to assemble a plan of action. Um, there's a lot of information we still don't have. We don't know. The, the conditional use permit was granted. We don't know if we can appeal that or not. We're not totally sure about the process of who, if this needs to go to the county commission or not, uh, what, where the permitting process, you know, how it's going to continue, where is the timeline for that, we don't even know if there's actually a finalized lease or not because I can't find it online. Okay. So, so there's more to know, but this is sending up the alert about the plan mm -hmm. as it exists mm -hmm. publicly today. And time that, is uh, of the essence. Yeah, so we can say <laughs> if they're already to the point of negotiating leases, it's down the road quite a little bit. And um, and really our biggest, our biggest weapon right now we have in the arsenal um, is social pressure. Um, if you don't agree with this type of development on our this treasured landmark that we are we celebrate, um, let Under Canvas know. Um, no, no contract is is in every every contract is negotiable. You know, so we have power to put pressure um, on this, and and we need we need a, a, a whole community to do that. Thank you, Daily Heron for joining in yet one more variation on the theme of how we share our home. Yes. Our one and only. Our one and only. How do we do that? <laughs> how do we do it right? Um, not really such an easy topic to tackle. Mm -hmm. Thanks for trying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your yeah. time, Christy. Thanks yeah, for all thanks you do. Daily. Thank you.